0: Welcome to episode number three of this four-part series celebrating Black Womanhood for Black History Month. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm once again joined by guests Marcy Elvis Walker, Tasha Hunter, and Patricia Taylor. I'm also thrilled to have a new voice in the conversation this week, historian Letty Shoemate from the podcast and Instagram page, Sincerely Letty. In this conversation, we continue our discussion about distorted ideas and images of Black women throughout history. From the asexual mammy image to the hypersexual Jezebel stereotype to black women as the backbone of society. I do need to warn you though that this episode is not for young ears and for those of you who have had sexual trauma as part of your story, this episode needs to be approached with caution as the history we share could be triggering. We share the tragic story of Sarah Bartman and discuss how her story weaves throughout history of the voyeurism and consumption of black women's bodies my guests very candidly and openly share their own stories of learning to embrace their black bodies while being under the white gaze and how they have had to fight to love and accept the skin they are in. Finally, my guests each share their own personal black women sheroes who they feel fully encompass mind, body, and spirit, and who have encouraged them in their own journey. This is a hard and at times uncomfortable conversation, but I encourage you to lean in and really listen to the voices of these women who so vulnerably share and honor their ancestors. Ladies, welcome back to the Her Story Space podcast. Thank you for having us. Once again, I am joined by Marcy, Patricia, Tasha, and Letty is our new guest joining us this week. Letty, you've been a guest on the podcast a couple of times, so honored to have you back today. Thanks. And I want to say kind of what I said last week, but again, I want to thank you guys for just letting me in the space, the sacred space with you ladies. I don't, I just want to give a voice to you ladies and to your ancestors. And I just am grateful that you're letting me even have a little spot at the table with you guys. So thank you again. Let's go around in case folks didn't listen last week and just do a quick introduction, who you are, what your website or Instagram and all that is, and then we'll get started. Okay. Um, why don't we go Letty first and then Marcy, Tasha, Patricia. Thanks,
1: yeah, so I'm Letty Shemate. Um, I'm a historian, anti-racism educator, podcast host, um, facilitator, black woman. Book lover, all the things. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm super excited to be here again. And uh, as far as where to find me, I have a Patreon, uh, which I'm assuming will probably be in the show notes. So it's Patreon.com/slash Letty Shoemate. And I'm on Instagram at sincerely My podcast is also called Sincerely Letty. And I love connecting the past to the present but doing it in a way which makes people have aha moments and really make people say oh my gosh i was lied to about history so i can say yes you were welcome to the light <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Letty, I mean, you are a bonafide historian, you've got all the schooling, this is your life. So I think I moved up a little bit in my daughter's book, because she is just a huge fan of yours. And she just couldn't believe that you're coming back on the podcast. So that's, <laughs> that's the kind of kid I'm raising that you are a superstar, with, Letty. So. Oh. I just thank you for being here today
2: um my name is marcy Alice walker and i'm a writer y'all i'm i'm just a writer and i clarify that i cannot do your anti-racist class i cannot facilitate your workshop i am a writer writing about a black woman's experience um my particular experience and i do that um black coffee of white friends and i do that with mockingbird history lessons because I've been a black woman who had to learn some pretty busted up history and I will have a book coming out soon. I don't know when y'all I'm, I'm in the waters. That's all I can say. Y'all pray I'm it to the
0: shore.
3: That's, that's what I
0: can say. Perfect. <laughs> Welcome back, Marcy, And then Tasha.
3: Hi everyone. I am Tasha Hunter. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I specialize in the treatment of childhood trauma and adults and I'm an author of uh, my memoir, What Children Remember. And you guys can find me on Instagram at TashaHunterLCSW. And I've got a podcast coming out March 1st that is titled When We Speak. Thank you for having me.
0: yeah that's tasha welcome and patricia and you're going to stay with us this whole time patricia today yes yes i (laughs) pray to the technology gods
4: (laughs) please lord let me stay Uh, but no seriously uh, my name is patricia taylor and i i'm also on social media instagram and facebook Uh, my name patricia underscore a underscore taylor and i uh, share anti-racism content I share from the perspective of being a black woman in America with uh, my website and and blog titled uh, some thoughts from your black friend. And I also work with the um, racial reconciliation organization called be the bridge. And I'm a educator within that organization. Um, Oh, and yes, speaking of podcasts, I've also co-host upside down podcast and I'm really excited about this conversation and just, uh, look up to all these women on this call. So I'm really happy to be here.
0: So we will go ahead and dive into this conversation and we've had a good kind of a pre-talk and I'm already aware of things I didn't know before. So we will see where this conversation goes. But the main point this week is we're going to continue the discussion about the distorted images that have been in our history of black women. We've talked about the mammy, Jemima, and that stereotype and breaking out of it. And this week, we're going to shift gears to kind of that Jezebel image. The mammy was the one end of the spectrum, the asexual. Jezebel is the other end, the oversexual. And to do that, I think we're going to have to start out with a story of Sarah Bartman. We're going to have to dive back into history. And this is a really hard story, but I think it's really important because it shows us a lot of where we got here today. So we're going to turn it over to historian Letty to share a little bit about about Sarah Bartman's
1: story. Yeah, and you said the keyword of showing a little bit because, because I don't want to be here for 30 minutes talking about Sarah Barton because I definitely could. Um, but I will touch on the main points about her story. It's one that people definitely need to know about. It's one that, like you were saying, is hard. It's it's heavy. Um, but that's also this country's history. It has always been this country's history and. <laughs> we did not create this system. Um, And it's also been the world's history too. So like, that's the part about Sarah Bartman is people just wanna look at the objectification um, and the brutal treatment of black people only here in North America. And I'm like, but the, slave trade was global this this did not just happen here right um and so sarah bartman uh i am going to start by saying and people are searching for her uh it's actually written different ways so her last name in some history books is uh, b-a-r-t-m-a-n-n and then some have it be A-A-R-T-M-A-N. And so I just want to let people know that if you find either one of those uh, from a credible source, um, don't think that it's incorrect. It's just how it's translated, depending on where you are. Anyway, um, so basically, Sarah Bartman was an African woman. Uh, She was living her life and uh, she was 16 years old whenever her fiance was murdered by Dutch colonists. Um, She actually then was taken and sold into slavery uh, to a trader um, named Putin. Pierter, and I want to say that the right way, um, William Cesar, um, he took her to Cape Town where she was to become uh, his quote unquote domestic servant. And I'm using that terminology because it's the incorrect terminology. Um, she was an enslaved woman. Uh, so that kind of stuff frustrates me. And I want to point out the issue with that language. Okay. Because I'm going to mention language a few times uh, while we're talking about her. Um, and so then, um, she ended up getting the, or her, her name started to be, um, Satgi. And I had to look this up a few times to say it the right way. Um, but it's spelled S-A-A-R-T-I-J-E, but it's Satgi. Um, yeah, a lot of extra letters in there, but again, uh, language is important. And so on October 29th, 1810, um, Sarah P.S. was born in 1789. Okay, so by 1810, uh, while she's been an enslaved African woman, um, she's now uh, supposed to sign a contract, okay, with this English um, ship surgeon named William Dunlop. And I haven't really mentioned why just yet until now on purpose, because Sarah's body was actually shaped in a way that was seen as freakish, to white europeans and i'm using that terminology and it may make people uncomfortable but it's important to use because that's exactly how they viewed her um she had a large like a large backside aka her butt was larger um her skin color was uh, different it was She was obviously an African woman, but she had different pigmentation um, all across her body, like everywhere. And so she was seen as, oh my gosh, what are you? We can make money off of you. Um, Not like we already aren't with your free labor, but now we can parade you around as you are someone who can be entertained and we can treat you like you're just an animal, right? Okay so um she's signed this contract and i want to say too that she could not read or write um, so she was literate. And so signing a contract is already no, because then that means that they had the ability to change it if they wanted to. They could write whatever they wanted to write, say whatever they wanted to say, and lie to her and tell her what it said. And it didn't say that. Um, and so apparently the terms of her contract were that she would travel with Hendrix Hendrix Cesar and Dunlop, um, friend and brother, um, to England and Ireland to work as a again. Domestic servant, enslaved woman, uh, and be exhibited for entertainment purposes. She was to receive a portion of the earnings from her exhibitions. And be allowed to return to South Africa after five years. I'm reading this exactly how it is on a website that's considered a credible site and it's problematic language, because what this is showing is that she was okay with this, right? Like, oh, well, these were her exhibitions, like how they're talking about her. That's absolutely not true. She had no say over this. She was tortured. Like she was brutalized. Like she was not, this is not uh, uh, an, an African woman that enjoyed her life, right? Um, And so, yeah, she was lied to and told, oh, well, you can return back to South Africa after five years. That never happened. Um, She actually ended up um, being paraded around uh, continuously, not just in England and Ireland, but in France and other countries. And uh, she was poked, prodded. Um, She was looked at as a spectacle. Um. People could pay to touch her body. People could pay to do whatever they wanted to do to her. Um, On stage, she sometimes wore skin tight, quote unquote, flesh colored uh, clothing. She also had to dress and wear beads and feathers and smoke a pipe and be this. Yeah, just this form of entertainment Um, and people who were really wealthy could pay for private um, shows in their homes, where then their families were allowed to do whatever they wanted to do with her. And so, uh, during all this time, something else that happened is um, one of the leaders, so to speak, of the anti-slavery movement in the UK uh, was like, "What is going on here?" Um, because they found out like what was going on, and they're like, "This is this is not okay." Uh, they had this document that said like, "This is going against all these things," and basically. like history shows us, um, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Whenever the people who owned Sarah Bartman and ran the governments um, had more money and had more power, right? So people can sit here and say that anti slavery movements were always successful. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, And so after she was in London and all these other um, cities and stuff like that, and countries uh in september 1814 she was um transported from england to france and then she was sold again to another man who showcased her with animals and exhibit her around paris and she was she had a trainer uh who would train her inside of a cage and uh people could really actually take um Take like sticks, I don't know the correct word for them, y'all. I'm sorry, and like poke her, prod her, do whatever um, they wanted to do to her. Again, this is the same treatment that she had had basically five years before and even before that. So let's just keep up with like the math here, right? With their whole five year promise. No. Um, and so then she got nicknamed um, Hottentot Venus. Uh, which is actually something that was on postcards and things like that. And basically just really showing that she was not even seen as a woman. Um, She was seen as a creature, as an animal, as something that could just be tamed and trained. And yeah. And so anyway, her, she, had this constant display and she was constantly seen as this attraction. Um, She actually passed away in 1816. She was 26 and um, or 25 forget. I can't do the math. I'm so sorry. Um, And um, she, but but even before she passed away, she was studied by uh, French scientists, quote unquote scientists, because what history shows us too is they weren't really scientists. They were just white men who wanted to say they were scientists and they were not. So there's that. Um, And it also, Sarah Bartman directly influenced the beginnings of the eugenics movement in Europe which also then came to America. And it's exactly how they were able to draw these skulls and draw this, these, these figures, these, yeah, and say that Black people were closer to animals than people. Sarah's body was not laid to rest whenever she passed away. They say that she may have died from smallpox or pneumonia or alcoholism. Or let's just say that she died because she was treated like shit. There's that. There's that, right? Like people try to put all this historic stuff with things to to absolve white uh, people from feeling guilty. And I'm like, no, that's not, no, stop doing that. Like, why do you think that she she, she was exposed? She was standing naked. She, all these things were going on. And so anyway, um, her bodily remains, her genitals, her brain, other parts of her body were pickled and they were used to study and um, her body was uh, just continued to be on display at the Museum of Man until um, 19, definitely until 1974 there. And I forget where until 1985. It was three years before I was born, 1985. Okay. Um, and um, it was not until, let me see, I'm, I'm scrolling through my notes here. It was not until the African National Congress's victory. Um, whenever president nelson mandela um, requested that that the french government return the remains of sarah bartman so that she could be laid to rest the process took eight years on march the 6th 2002 she was brought back home to south africa where she was buried 2002 i was in high school like and i want to and i'm continuously saying times and things like that for people to grasp the fact that this was not a long time ago. This is in no way, shape or form a long time ago. Uh, I want people who are listening to this podcast to go and watch um, credible videos that are talking about Sarah Bartman so you can learn more about the details. And you can see the images and everything like that because it's extremely important because we still see this happening today to Black women and how we are seen as spectacles, um, and how our bodies are objectified, like we're commodified. And then in the same breath, and I know that we're not here yet with this conversation, but I want to say it right now. Um, in the same breath, we see white women in this country and in the world uh, being glorified for the same things that black women have been demonized for, the same body shape and the same body like figures that actually white women are paying for. Um, they're actually paying for the butt implants and, and, and things like that. And so then they're glorified, right? And it's seen as fashion and all these things, right? Are seen as, oh, this is, this is cool. And you have Sarah Bartman, who was 26 years old and she was treated like she was just even worse than circus animals are today.
0: Thank you for all of that, lady. And that's a lot and heavy. Yes. And we talked about last week that we wanted to try to stay away from that trauma narrative, but this is a narrative that is so important to the history of Black women, like you said, not in just in this country, but worldwide. And it's a story that we can't just ignore. And so it's one, it's important for us to learn and look at. And it's it's really heavy and hard. And it's hard even as I look at you beautiful Black women to be like, this was a real person. And that's what we've got to understand. This is just not some historical made-up narrative, like this is a real living person, 26 years old, and now she stands, at least what I've read, is that she is one of the most important women in African history, but now she stands as a symbol of the long-standing struggle of the Black woman, the commodification of the Black woman, the dismissal of the struggle of Black women, and the dismissal of the voice of Black women. She's part of the reason our stories are all interwoven together, but she's part of the reason we are where we are today. Does anybody else want, I, I don't want to put anybody on the spot because I know we're feeling a lot right now. So does anybody else want to talk about this or the ramifications of this, the stereotype of this just in your own life?
2: I do want to talk about that, but I want to, Letty. thank you so much. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I could, I have a very hard time talking about her, really a hard time. Um, yeah. But I'm so glad that you were able to articulate it so well. Hmm. I just want to say that it's a, when we're talking about the image of Black wa- women, it's not a small thing what happened wh- that we were talking about last week and earlier, um, you and I, Andrea, about Aunt Jemima. Ibram Kendi says this often, that history doesn't just pass, it, it, and racism doesn't just pass, we evolve into things. And so, believe me when I say that if it were politically correct for them to use the image of Sarah Bartman as on beauty products or whatever on sex sexualized products, they would have. So it's important that we we see that, and it's important in the conversation because when we have new black women who are on the public stage it's very important the language that we use when we're talking about whether it be nancy green who was and jemima for a number of years or whether we're talking about sarah bartman or whether we're talking about Stacey abrams we have to be very careful when we have these women who are public figures that we don't poke and prod and feel that we have ownership over them and sometimes I hear things about Stacey Abrams that really bother me. Her victory is being owned, her story being owned, being poked and prodded and use her words and quotes when you're taking a Maya Angelou quote and you're putting it wherever you want and however you want. You're objectifying Maya Angelou, you're objectifying that woman. And so that's why when we're talking about images, we need to talk about that. I also wanted to add, you're so right, Letty. She didn't die of alcoholism. I think they also said it could have been syphilis. It could have been this. It could have been that. She also died because she had so much trauma from the very beginning. She lost children. Um, she lost loved ones. She had been taken away from her loved ones. She was a nursemaid, which we're talking about women beating white society, she literally used her breast and her body to feed children, (laughs) white children. And you think about that, if you are a mom, think about how that would feel if you had lost your child, but someone saw your body as well, you're not using that milk, I'll use it over here. I can't fathom a scenario today where that would be acceptable. But this was a common thing that happened with Black women. And also when we were talking about the domestics of the 60s who worked in homes and how they had their own families to also um, care for. Sarah didn't have a home to go to at the end of the day. The cage was the home. She didn't didn't have a family to go to or a community to go back to who could build into her um, and uplift her. It's just... To me, it, it's it's just a, an unbelievable story because if that's her story, I honestly believe there are so many more that we'll never hear, and that's the thing. There's so many more. We talk about um, child sex trafficking right now, but my goodness, it's not new. It's not new, and it's been committed to the to the bodies of black children, for since the beginning. So I just, I just want people to enter, if you're going to enter into her story, don't enter into it trying to undo it or trying to um, justify it. Don't enter into these stories trying to justify the reason. Enter into them with the posture of there is no human reason for any human being to ever be treated in such a way. Not like, well, historically that's how women were treated. No, no, no. We've always been human. We've always had human emotion and the human ability for compassion, for um, empathy, for dignity. So, no, that doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a historical thing. We, we, are, we didn't evolve into dignified people. <laughs> we've, we've always had the ability, we were born innately to love one another. And to choose to do that or to choose not to do that. And they chose not to love her. They chose not to see her.
0: Tasha, would you mind speaking on this a little bit? Because you're a trauma therapist. You have trauma in your story. Just as much or little as you want to share to this topic. Because there's so many directions. But just what you're thinking right now.
3: Yeah. So I, I was listening to Letty and Marcy. And and just thinking about this long history and this trauma living in our DNA and our bones. And just even hearing all of the things that happened with Sarah Bartman and my nervous system was activated just listening to Letty recall that history. And I was like, ooh, I need a moment. <laughs> and and then I thought about there's this this grotesque treatment, this grotesque abuse of her and so many others that don't have names. So I want to honor those that I don't know. I, the stories were not written about them. And then in some of the the information that was sent out by you and Marcy, one of those videos, they they talked about how Sarah was, she was caged and shown off. And there were bears that were like, she was in a circus. And I thought, my God, and she lived to 26. Whew still a baby (laughs) in a lot of ways, but had gone through so much. And then it's not lost on me because you guys, you know, we were talking about Little Miss Miley Cyrus and that 2013 Grammys performance and she's slapping the woman with the big butt and, and the bare head. And maybe she, she never heard of Sarah Bartman. Maybe not. I don't know. But she's slapping the butt and then she's got the Black dancers. And so it's not lost on me that we we have this history of absolutely grotesque, inhumane treatment. And we're considered dirty, unattractive, and, and we're considered grotesque and all of these things. But then were on display for white people's enjoyment. And then there was something in one of the videos where they said that women in Paris, for a time at least, started padding their bodies to kind of model Sarah Bartman's body because they wanted to get husbands. Yeah, that's where the bustle, bustling, yeah. Yes. So my system is just activated, just thinking of of all of that and then where we are at now in the 21st century and the ways in which women they don't have those kinds of bodies they're they're not shapely they don't have our hips and our butts and so they go and they pay with injections and and all kinds of things to look like us
0: yeah there's a lot there thank you yeah
3: there's a lot
0: patricia do you want to add to this i know your mind is reeling too i'm sure.
4: Yes, it's a lot. And, um, you know, as, as everyone was talking, and I'm sure that, that each of us have these stories, you know, I, I just think about my personal experiences when I've been objectified, you know, I've, oh, you know, thought that uh, this young white man was really interested in me. And then, you know, I found out later, like, oh, I, I called my friend and said, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't get it like she's she was black you know like oh you know there like there's that there's that you know shoe falling off the the other foot like oh my gosh like this is this is what you came here for <laughs> um and i think that that article that we we're referencing with the Miley Cyrus performance, there was one little piece I'd wanted to to read because it said, I'm not surprised, this is like towards the very end of it, I'm not surprised that so many overlooked this particular performance of brown bodies as white amusement parks in Cyrus's performance. The whole point is that those round black female bodies are hyper visible in mass, but individually invisible to white men who were, I suspect Cyrus's intended audience. And, and that part just really stood out to me in this conversation with the idea that the, the sexual appeal of a Black woman uh, can be put on display, whether it's in this story of Sarah Bartman, whether it's uh, at, a, at a strip club with you know, Black dancers, whether it's white frat boys who just want to hook up with Black women because they've heard things about Black women in the bed but we don't have enough dignity for them to actually value who we are. Like we can be put on display. We can be poked and prodded. We can be, you know, slept with and discarded. We can be, you know, fondled on the dance floor and like, ooh, I wanna dance with a girl with a big butt. And then, you know, walk away from you. And the fact that this is a narrative that continues to be perpetuated, like when has it stopped that it's ongoing, it's ongoing to this day right now, like this past week, there was an article that came out about pastors in Texas, I believe, who referred to Kamala Harris as Jezebel. I mean, this is the vice president of the United States. And and I wish, I wish that these same people who, you know, talked for four years about, we have to pray for the president and honor the president and his position. I wish you would stand up and say something in defense of this black and South Asian woman who's being so degraded. Like, like I wish you would. And so these are, you know, common, these, it's too common, you know, like it's like this story, like this, this real life experience that Sarah Bartman went through. It's it's like horrifying, but it's it was common and it is common just as marcy said it's just ever evolving and and i think that it it makes me so furious when when people want to even and then take it a step further of course and then it's our fault because you know i mean if we didn't have the big butt we didn't wear those tight leggings you know we have white women wearing yoga pants all day every day it's not my fault that you don't have around bottom, you know, Uh, but uh, I mean, I was in a conversation with a white woman watching some movie, you know, some nineties, early 2000 movie (laughs) that took place at the HBCU and and the dancers. And I'm over here like, yes, like this is what I'm talking about. Representation, like curvaceous, beautiful black women on the, on the, the football game, you know, the halftime show. And she walks in the room and she's like, ew, that's disgusting. With her super skin tight yoga pants on. And I'm like, what's disgusting about it? Well, I mean, the way that they, you know, that they're moving and and they're tight clothes. And I'm looking at her like, I can, I can literally see every part of your body coming through your yoga pants, but it's because these women have curves. It offends you so much. But if you were in the club with these same women, you'd be the one to be like, Hey girl, Hey, like, let's go dance. Cause I'm sure you've got the moves. So it's just, it's hypocritical and it's disgusting and there needs to be a reckoning, but that's not gonna happen as long as it's like, well, I mean, they're just curvy, they're curvy. And that's just, you know, like they're, if they weren't so provocative,
0: then then that wouldn't be the problem. Thank you, Patricia. And like you, that was such a good point. You know, we look at Sarah Bartman's story and we think, oh, we've just come so far that would never happen today, but it still does. I mean, yes, we have a vice president that is a woman, excuse me, a woman of color, but the comments that are still said about her. I mean, it is still so deep ingrained in our society. Letty, did you want to talk a little bit more? I just that?
1: was thinking about some things Patricia was saying, because I was over here like, yes, um, talking everything because it's so true. But I also, of course, my brain is wanting people to also remember, right, that this isn't just about what we're talking about right now whenever it comes to black women's bodies, whenever it comes to being on display in the ways that we're talking about today, it's about being on display, like between the lines of the word, right? Okay. So like Mm, the fact that like the white gaze of the black body, right? Like regardless of gender, um, it's always been entrenched in the idea of inner Entertainment the way that they want to see it and so patricia whenever you just said right whenever the woman was like oh but that's but but that's disgusting because that didn't suit her in that moment didn't meet her approval of what entertainment should be what what this person is doing right and so i, I want people to also understand that when we talk about entertainment and the black body i'm also thinking about menstrual shows right and how white people would dress and they would paint their skin charcoal black and draw on these big lips and put padding in their pants um, to um, emulate like, oh, here's this big black butt, right? And I'm saying like that because that's exactly how they Mm -hmm. saw it. And so we've always been seen as spectacles, right? Rather than human beings um, in a way. And it also comes in, whenever we set boundaries with our bodies. And I mean, even things when it comes to like touching our hair and and things like that, it's like, we are not here for you to do that or for you to, that's, that's not why we're here. But then whenever we stand up for ourselves, right especially as black women when we stand up for ourselves and we set those boundaries then we are seen as the problem then we're seen as oh well you're just being too sensitive oh well why why can't i do that 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 wouldn't bother me it goes back to bodily autonomy and, and ownership um two things that black women have never had with ourselves like we've had to fight for that yeah it's just such a deep conversation like i just go like so many layers for me because it's 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 still so evident today. And I mean, we're talking about clubs and stuff. And um, Patricia, you were talking about how uh, we all probably have that example of whenever we were seen as, oh, well, you like me because I'm the black girl. I have so many of those stories. Like, I, I have so many where I was like, I am not this exotic creature for you to have won and taken to put on display for your damn friends. Like that is not what I'm here for. And I had to learn how to defend myself from that whenever I was, first time it happened to me, I was 20. I'm 32 years old. Like this is not something, and, and, I, and I want people to also understand that this also happens to black children, like black girls, children. I used to work with um, kids that were in sixth grade, seventh grade, happened to them.
0: No, I'm glad you shared that. And this is opening my eyes. I mean, it's hard enough to be a woman in this country. So hearing you guys share the added layer, it's a lot. And I appreciate you guys being so open to sharing it. And Letty, I mean, you like to bring history to the present. And if we can, we don't have time to go into all the history of this, but if you just look at the history of women, black women in this country being owned from slavery to being raped and breeders. Like it doesn't, it, it just, it's majority of what this country has done. One thing, and then I'll, I'll be quiet, but this just really struck me. It said, after the civil war and the end of slavery, the sexual victimization of black women and girls did not end. The crime of rape was common. Obviously black men to black, or excuse me, white men on black women. Yet from the end of the Civil War until the 1960s, no Southern white male was ever convicted of a rape or attempted rape of a black woman or girl. So Sarah Bartman may have been long, long ago, but we're, this is the 60s. And it's still, we look at Breonna Taylor today, how that black women are still the least valued. And we have, there's so much. I don't know where, Marcy, I'll let you take it from here. Where do you want to direct the, think this conversation should go next? because I really Um, want you guys to steer this because it's a hard topic and I don't want to be the person.
2: Well, I, I would steer it towards how that, how the image, the whole image, imagery of what health looks like, what sexuality looks like, and making that into a white, certain body type, blue eyed. And it's a difference. There's the marrying beauty (laughs) of whiteness. And um, so it's like, this is the girl that you bring home. And then how that plays up against Blackness and how it was often done in film. And we look at the role, the big problem for me with Gone with the Wind is not so much the lost cause, although yes, that's all problematic, but it's the role of Black women in that film. And it, it's really hard to understand that someone, Hattie McDaniel, had to pay that price, right? Because that was, that was the only role that she was going to be offered. It didn't matter um, if she was a good singer, if she was a better actress. It did, I mean, and she was. She was a, I don't know if she was a good singer, but she was a better actress. But she was never going to play the role of Scarlett, of a Scarlett in any movie, in any movie she was only going to be this overblown idea of, of a black female that's this asexual idea. And in the same way it happens with um, black women. So we have Holly Berry, years later, she comes along and she wins the Academy Award and she's in a Jezebel role. So her role in Monsters Ball was a very sexualized black woman, very desirable black woman there hasn't been a whole lot of roles of black women as just as these four, three women I'm sitting with right now, you know, just, just, just the role of a, of a black woman who is just living life, right? Because the appetite hasn't been there for those stories. So now you have black filmmakers making films and making, and you have black um, creators making products that we as a black community want to have. And so now um, how we consume things is really important. So when we are consuming, um, and and, and I know that this is, (laughs) um, the way that we consume bodies, white, black, Asian, whatever it is, is a direct result of blackness versus whiteness. So, we have black women who, like you were saying, uh, Patricia, you know, you're, you're watching this HBCU thing, or we'd see, um, Beyonce's homecoming, right? And I had some women like, why why, why do you like homecoming? I'm just like, because it's us being us and it's us being fly and it's us being sexual and it's us being desirable and it's us being mad and it's us being happy and it's us being in love, broken up, it's all the emotions, right? It's us being successful, it's us striving. And so when you see Beyonce's homecoming, It's almost as if you're getting an invitation to something that you you have not been invited to before. If if you've gone to college as a black person, you've been to a step show, you've seen these things, right? It's not new. But for the white gays, it was so new, right? She she didn't make up so much of it. Like they're just like, oh, she created this. I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No, no, she didn't create it. She brought it to the forefront, right? And, and and for for us, she showed up at Coachella for us. And there's something so beautiful about that. She didn't think about the white gays. Um, as a matter of fact, in the video, I think she's, her mom is kind of concerned that she's not thinking about the white gays. But she's just like, I'm going to do this for my brothers and my sisters, and I'm going to show up how we show up, right? And then I'll hear like, white Christian mom friends say, well, I can't let my kid watch that. It's dirty. It's it's this, it's that. But your kid watches women doing downward facing dog. That's not dirty. That's not sexual. That's not, really? Have you looked at some of these poses? They are just as sexual, just as overdone. You're half naked too. So I don't want to hear it. And I think that that's, it's it's with the food again it's like a biscuit is so bad and you'll die but a croissant is life I don't want to hear that it's really a colonized perception of beauty and body and form and what we do with them I do not see a difference and a jiggle and um twerking when I see some of these women running around my neighborhood half naked and Lululemon and everything's shaken. So I think we have to be very careful about colonizing what modesty is and that we're not saying that modesty is, needs to be this white comfortable narrative. I'm not comfortable with your breast, so you need to wear a shirt collar that comes all the way up your neck. I'm not comfortable with your your butt so you need to wear a muumuu and a tent. I just think that we really have to be careful about how we, we colonize and and free ourselves. And so we as women can start appreciating our own bodies and not having a patriarchy tell us what those bodies should look like. Be it that the patriarchy is saying, you need to get butt implants or you need to get breast implants or you need to cut this off. I don't see how that's very much different than Sarah Bartman being in jars. I don't want women to feel like they have to dissect themselves to be accepted, to be loved, to be a woman. And I certainly don't want um, women to feel like they have, I, it, it's no different than those, those white women in France putting bustles on and putting things on because they wanted to play the role of the hot and top Venus in the bedroom. So, you know, we need to be really careful about the language that we use. And I've heard it so often, I've sat in church and I've heard, um, pastors say things like that sex is good and it's holy and you can do what you want in the bedroom, but you gotta be modest in public. And it's, it's troubling because if you already see the shape of someone's body as being unholy, it, it it's another erasure of the Imago Day. It's, it's, we are constantly erasing God's image on people who are not white, thin, straight size narrative. And um, we do it with food, we do it with um, sexuality, we do it with what we do or don't do with the body. And it's, it's deeply troubling for me.
0: So many good and powerful points there, Marcy. And so let's explore a little bit dive a little bit deeper into that topic of colonized beauty and modesty with the modesty I'm going to let you talk here Tasha but I just want to say a couple things that I think is so important I mean this is a white woman listening who's always had a slim figure but then has a daughter with a very womanly figure that's opened my whole eyes to that whole modesty topic especially in the Christian world because I did raise her early on like modest, cover your cleavage, but my eyes have been opened of that colonization of that modesty and why are we hiding our bodies and why are we falling into this patriarchy? So as black women though, That's something you've had a history of trying to fall into that white norm. I was reading Fearing the Black Body. It's one to add to the list, but just a little bit about that. It talks about the idea that slenderness is that it's very core racialized and racist. And the fatness in history has been associated with savagery and racial inferiority. So it's like, that's what we see spilling over in today. And I know Tasha, you do a lot of work with body image and loving the black body and self-love. So do you want to talk about that a little bit and that? mold of having to escape that stereotype and the decolonization.
3: I got a couple of things to say. First of all, I'm paying my tides this week to Marcy, Letty, and Patricia. Thank you, ladies. Um, I'm loving this whole conversation. Uh, I think that as a Black woman, again, tapping back into the history of trauma, it was really important for Black people to take back our power and ownership of our bodies. I think that when, as Black women, when we're not comparing ourselves and our bodies to antiquated versions and white supremacist versions of what's beautiful and what's acceptable, we actually love our hair. We love our skin tone. We love our bodies. So I own my hips. I'm owning my big boobs. I'm owning all of it. You're going to get these thighs, you know, And and so, and I'm not trying to really take too much away, you know, uh, that's how I take back my power as a black woman. You're getting it all. I'm not trying to cover it up any longer. So when I hear Marcy talk about this covering up, I remember going to churches like that. So I wore the long dresses and I, you know, and didn't show my arms and still struggle with some of that. You know, oh my goodness, can't show any cleavage. I grew up in churches like that. And so now I'm, I'm at the age of 41 undoing that. So, really, that work is really starting in, in me and then in my clients who it's predominantly uh, Black women. 98% of my clientele are Black women. It's teaching them what it exactly it means to love and accept ourselves fully and completely. And then I can't help but think about when you talk about Beyonce and that performance at the Super Bowl and and Homecoming and all the things I think about the 70s and how again we had to take back our black power you know, and we did that through uh, black exploitation and and all of that. And black is beautiful. And so we had Soul Train. We had the Jet Magazine models, just black power fully in our products and how we're viewing. We're taking back charge of how we, you know, how we're represented in media and in music and in our products and things made just For us, as I think about that perm, just for me, and those hair products, (laughs) and so, um, and so now, when people say, "Well, why is there a black this, or why is there a black that?" Because think about Sarah freaking Bartman. Think about her. This is us healing ourselves of that trauma that lives in our bones, saying we matter, our bodies matter, my skin tone matters. You're gonna get this. I'm not putting any bleaching cream on this skin you're going to get this dark skinned woman. Okay. You're going to get my full lips. You're going to get it all. And so anyway, I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but
0: <laughs> it's good. Yes. I want to say like, amen or something. Yeah. So, 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 so
3: that's just kind of, so in my trauma work, it's just tapping into when I work with women and, and they have these doubts about how they look or or their are doubts about how they fit into society and they're dealing with unworthiness. Let me challenge, where did that belief come from? Maybe it came from your parents. Where did they get it from? And then we're tracking this generational stuff. We call it legacy burdens. And that burden, you being a burden, your life being a burden, that does not belong to you. Let's hand that back to the people it belongs to. And you're going to get healed today. So, so that's the work that I do.
2: Powerful, Andrea. Can I ask Letty a question?
0: Yes, go for
2: it. So, Letty, just with with your knowledge of history, I wondered how you felt about some of the rhetoric around Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. and how that connects to what we're hearing about Kamala Harris and how Michelle Obama was received through yeah. the White House. I thought the most brilliant thing about Stacey Abrams was Trump never saw her coming. Mm-hmm. that that invisibility cloak, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, He just never saw her coming. He underestimated her. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would love to hear just from a historical perspective, your narrative on that.
1: Yeah, so interesting that you asked me this question because whenever I did read about Kamala Harris being called a Jezebel, the first thing that I thought of, there's a book, it's called At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle McGuire. It's about Black women and civil rights. And it talks extensively about Black women, sexual assault, rape um, by white men and by white police officers and how it never went punished. Um, But I'm saying that because there are two parts and I, I, I know one part is in this book and I think the other one is in this book, too. I may be getting that wrong, but I've definitely read it somewhere where Black women were called Jezebels and called all kinds of names Remember, they would not quote unquote, submit to white men and allowing white men to rape them. And so they would then, and or even if the white men did, they would still call them that, right? And so whenever I read about Kamala Harris being called a Jezebel, I was like, but y'all had no problems with the former first lady who sat in the White House, was married and y'all called her a Christian and her pictures are all over the on internet. So... What are we doing? Right. And then <laughs> because then at that point, I'm like, asking people, and I'm like, oh, but you want to say what it, what it really is. And so that's one thing, Marcy, that I thought about. And also with Stacey Abrams, I I don't know if it's when we, we were already, we were already recording this or not, but we mentioned Black Girl Magic. Right. And a lot of people were saying like hashtag like black girl magic with Stacey Abrams and like Latasha Brown and a lot of other black women. And I was frustrated by that. And I'm going to tell you why I was frustrated by that. I said, we are not these mythical people like we're they worked hard They had to sacrifice so much to do what they did. People want to look at it and be like, oh, but they accomplished all this and it's great. And I was like, you, I hope the history books, right, or Stacey Abrams one day tells what she really had to go through to get what she got done, done, because she's going to eventually tell it. And I I hope that she does. And Stacey Abrams, if you ever listen to this, I hope you do because i know that you receive death threats and all of these things and god knows what else to to do that and, and so whenever people say black girl magic what i think about in history is this um idea the supernatural idea of black people being um like used for all right like you're just here uh, to be owned you're then here to entertain us you're then here to have this to have this your your humanity is not your humanity we we've gone through evolutions of being dehumanized and what i mean by that is we were dehumanized and we were in enslaved people okay but then I also see us being dehumanized, and we saw how we were being depicted in menstrual shows. And I felt like we were being dehumanized in so many other ways, even up to the 80s and the 90s, and how we were depicted in in sitcoms I mean think back to even like Martin that that show that I I used to love Martin right and Gina was the white skinned woman and Pam was a dark-skinned loud woman but people always laughed at Pam and laughed loudly at Pam and all these things right but then think about the jokes that were said about Pam on the show Right. And so I don't know if people really connect that stuff. There's um, another really good book. It's called Color by by Fox. And it's about this. It's um, about the Black image in TV shows and in movies. And I'm going off on a slight tangent, but I just have so many thoughts. But Marcy, Stacey Abrams, what I first noticed about Stacey Abrams was how I knew that America was going to treat her. She's a dark-skinned Black woman. She's not slim. She doesn't fit this acceptable image, right? Right. And so that's why a couple of years ago, and people were demonizing her and all these things. Are go like, oh, well? She's she's not fit to be in office. And I asked a person, I said why, and they were trying to say all these things. And I was like, you've literally said all the education that she has. So why? And I asked them, is it because she's a dark skinned black woman? And their face got very red, like they got very mad at me. But I was like, no. But is is that why? Right. Or is it because she's a black woman who is therefore threatening white supremacy? And God forbid a black woman ever threaten white supremacy, which is also threatening white male patriarchy. And they are not able to conquer her. And I do mean conquer her physically as well. Right. So what are y'all really mad at? Right. Like white, white women, like why are y'all really rejoicing whenever black women are winning? Is it because it's a black woman that's out of the reach of your white I won't go there, but it's just things I think about, right? Like I just think about like mistresses and how mistresses treated their enslaved women, how they would be angry at the enslaved black woman, and your but it's your husband. It's your husband that's raping these children and black women and black men. Um, but people will not wanna talk about that part, right? <laughs> but it's true, right? I'm like, if we're gonna talk about the history, let's talk about the history because we're. I'm not just going to do half of it, right? So Marcy, I hope this is answering your question that you asked me because um, I'm actually just now going all the way off on all kinds of things because I get so frustrated it and and with, with Stacey Abrams, and with the whole idea of like black girl magic, I used to say black girl magic all the time because we were saying it, and by we, I mean. Black women were saying it. And so we had this collective idea of what that represented for us. But I really love, I don't know if y'all watch Lovecraft Country, but the um, little girl, I forgot her name that's in it, whenever she actually, right? I mean, granted, the um, whole show touches on magic. And I don't know if people understand the African roots of things, but I love that. Cause I was like, oh, y'all going all the way back to Black people and all this stuff. And this is great. Like roots and all this stuff. And so whenever she had, those powers, right? I was like, "Oh, this is this is awesome!" And like, people were hashtagging "Black Black Girl Magic" and all this stuff. And I was like, "But the writers of the show did not leave it there. Like, she was she was still a black girl. What they tried to show was that her humanity was still there. Like, what she was doing wasn't magical. What she was doing is fighting for her humanity, like for her blackness. Like, what her mom, what." Hippolyta did right was embody all that Black women were not able to even do, and so I was like, but it's but it's not magic, Is, but it's not Black girl magic. That's just a nice little hashtag that y'all put on stuff. White America, whenever you want to say that, whenever you talk about Gabby Douglas or whenever you talk about Simone Biles, right? And if you believe in this Black Girl Magic or whatever you want to call it, and I'm saying this to White America specifically because I think never Black people say it, and I can't speak for all Black people, it's a different meaning. And I'm like, so why can y'all say that we have Black Girl Magic, then you don't do anything to stand up for us? You don't do anything to speak up for for our humanity. You don't speak up against racism. You you instead want to continuously absolve yourself from any accountability and any any responsibility especially whenever you're the ones that are emulating blackness and so I just said a lot but Marcy I truly do hope <laughs> that I answer your question so yeah I, I,
4: I yeah I'm just over here like boop 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 <laughs> like, yeah I, I'm I, I said and I'm a just like no like with, with what all three of you said I've just been back here like Woo! Um oh gosh, so many thoughts. Okay. I want to start with, with Black Girl Magic. And then I want to go back to, to the points that Tasha was 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 making. There's just so much. Um I'm just sitting here thinking like, dang, like we can't have nothing. You know, like like we just really can't. I mean, if you think of like the movement that was popularized by Kashawn Thompson, a black woman, like like just like Lady said, like we know like what this means, but it's become just like another way for white people, white America, white women to be like, but see, I'm really for you because I use the hashtag and I am for you because I really love these super talented black people. And I want you to know that I'm for you. And I'm like, you're not for me if you weren't checking on me after uh, Breonna Taylor's uh, murders got off scot-free and you were off, you know, talking about your keto diet and being in La La Land baking cakes and posting, you know, your favorite recipe that day. You're not really for me. You know, you're not for me just because you use a hashtag that has become socially acceptable as a way to, you know, prop up black people and black women. And it just, it, it frustrates me though, because it, I'm just like, we can't have nothing. Like, Like, you know, I want to be able to be like, I appreciate black women. I love black women. I love us. Like, you know, we have, I love us because we have overcome so much and because we're still here, because we're still standing and because we keep going because we fight so hard because it means so much to us and and you know everything gets co-opted everything becomes you know like under the white gaze everything becomes well what's the narrative that that suits me you know um how can i feel good about what i'm doing you know how can i like sort of kind of dip my toe in the water of being for my black sisters without actually doing anything for our black sisters and it's just it just makes me mad (laughs) like it just makes me mad you know it makes me so mad that uh there aren't more people defending us and standing up for us and not because we like and, and just it's just such a weird thing where it's like oh but i don't want to be a victim you know blah blah no 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 like do you honor my life do i have dignity and worth like then say something show me like show me with your actions you know um. So that's just a little bit of what I was thinking yeah. when Lenny yeah, was talking about I, am <laughs> trying to think,
0: Patricia, have I ever used that hashtag? And thank the Lord, I don't. Uh, think I,
4: it. So. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and and again, like I, I, you know, have used it a bunch too. But it's just, it's so just difficult. when it comes, yeah, so but yeah. yeah, but it still becomes like, yeah, when it just becomes co-opted, it just feels like, man, well, there it goes, you know. Yeah. But I wanted to share share a story that I've actually been thinking about since you and Marcy's first conversation and and it really hit home when Tasha was talking about it. I mean, and and Marcy too, I mean, just who drives this whole narrative, you know, white patriarchy. Um who gets to say what bodies are acceptable when who gets to say what bodies have worth and value, Who who's driving the narrative, who was losing their ever-loving minds last year during Super Bowl halftime show because, you know, these two Latina women, you know, oh, like who was losing their minds and, and who gets to, to choose what is appropriate and what isn't. But growing up, and I know I've shared this before, growing up and, in, in, you know, I was like that one Black girl in a predominantly white suburb and then going to an HBCU, it was such a mind blowing experience because it was literally like my own homecoming. Like I was, I never realized that my curves were to be celebrated. I never realized that, you know, my curves were attractive to men, not a deterrent. You know Um, I never realized that I could just exist in my skin fully and no one was looking at me like, ooh, like what does she have on, Mm-mm. you know, like I know she doesn't think she could pull that off with, with, you know, all that, but she has, you know, <laughs> um, I, and then I, I had like a physical, like, I, I remember this so clearly when I would be in that environment, I would feel like I could be my full self and not, and again, didn't even have the language for that at the time, but just, I, it, I felt it like physically different. And then when I would get on a plane and go back to California to my predominantly white suburb, it shifted. And suddenly I, I I was I was cognizant of the fact that I was back under the white gaze and I would change up, you know, the, the clothing I would wear. I would make sure I was, you know, sucking it in. And at that time, you know, it really was like this is pre three babies and all that. But it was just in my brain, I was like, like I, I'm aware now that my body is not the one that's desirable. I'm aware now that my curves are going to, st- to stand out as something that's negative. I'm aware now that I'm the friend in this environment, but never, you know, the, the girlfriend material or, you know, the wife material, but maybe good enough to sleep with because I want to try a black girl on for size. And, and like, but it was like a literal, like physical actual shift, like going from the airplane from Tuskegee University in Alabama to the Bay Area, California, And realizing like in one space, I'm me and and all of me is accepted fully. And we can celebrate each other in all the different shapes and sizes that we bring. And then another space, it's like, oh, wait, I'm not close enough to whiteness. So I can't really be loved and accepted in the skin that I'm in. And just, I just, again, didn't have the language for that. I didn't, I didn't know what to call that. I just knew what it felt like to not not feel like I I fit in because I was no longer in one environment living up to the standard. And so when I see grown women who are accomplished like Stacey Abrams, who are being so slandered and people wanna write it off like it's a joke, like, oh, you know, it's just boys being boys, men being men, people just say, people just, no. Like when I see these articles from people who claim they believe the same Jesus that I believe in calling names to the vice president of the United States of America. And then you want to act like, you know, that like, it's just no big deal. You know, I mean, it's just because like, she wears the pants and the, and you know, her husband and no, no, just stop it. Like at at, at almost 40 years old, I think about how hard I've had to fight to be able to be like, I love myself and I will refuse to go backwards. But society is always trying to take us backwards. You're not enough, you're too much. You you know, watch your tone, watch your curves, watch your this, watch your hair, watch every single part about me. How about you watch yourself? How about you get yourself together? How about you gather your people? How about you take an honest, hard look in the mirror and see how you have been complicit to the problem that we have been fighting for centuries. But you continue to make it about me. And I just want to live. I want to live. I want to celebrate Black women. I want to celebrate myself. I want to feel good in the skin that I'm in. I want to feel great in the skin that I'm in. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. And and I want to be able to to see and, and just this world, this is what I dream of. And I'm not gonna let go of it because I think if we don't have something to dream about, right, then what is this all for? Right. <laughs> but I want, I want there to be a space and a time when this is truly understood and that there is there's no doubt. There's not even like a question in 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 the brains of our of our white counterparts who claim that they're for us that the treatment of Black women is wrong without a shadow of a doubt, and that whatever they think they're gonna lose or whatever's gonna cost them to say it, that they will just understand <laughs> and really know, and really like, like I mean, know <laughs> that our worth and our dignity is so profound and is so valuable and they can't take it away from us. You know, they just can't take it away from us.
2: Andrea, on that beautiful, beautiful, it's it's like a prayer. That was a liturgy. If we could ask the question, our fun question, Yes, what I called it our joy Thank and you. celebration question because I think it's yes. important to Bye. to include that because these women have shared the vulnerability, um, and I hope people are really listening because there is something that Letty said that I loved is that at the same time that these things were happening to Sarah Bartman, it also it peaked the eugenicist movement, but it also at that same time the worth of black. ...ness and Black bodies were heavily being written about and discussed all through the Enlightenment era, era. And what they were saying is that, do Black bodies have souls? If they don't have souls, can't we enslave them? Do they have inherent worth? I mean, that's what this country is built on. And that's why Black bodies are not mentioned in the Constitution. And that's why we are here at this point talking about what foods are good, what foods are clean. There's just so many, there's a lot of decolonizedness has to start in your home, like with your plate, you know, and and that was the goal of talking about the Jemima code and talking about how we've treated black bodies and therefore we've we've basically been on a permanent fast from um the the beauty and the joy and the celebration of blackness.
0: So this is a joy and celebration question for each of you. Who is your black girl quote Shiro? Whom you feel fully encompasses her mind, body, and spirit?
1: Um, for me, I would say, and honestly, it's because I've just been reading about these two, both of these women actually, um, the past week. I don't, yeah, um, this is gonna sound very Maya Angelou. And it's because I've been reading just more of Maya Angelou's work as of late. Her stuff that she wrote before people knew her um that in between time that gets left out of the history books i've just been kind of digging through that stuff and i'm actually going to reread i know why the cage bird sings yesterday i posted on instagram and i'll pull it up real quick um post it on instagram and i want to read it here uh a quote because i was really feeling it in my soul yesterday morning and i read it honestly y'all like 10 times um but in I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, my Angelou said, the fact that the adult American Negro female emerges a formidable character is often met with amazement, distaste, and even belligerence. It is seldom accepted as an, in, as an inevitable outcome of the struggle won by survivors and deserves respect, if not enthusiastic acceptance. And I read that over and over and over again. Because it, that to me, truly embodies how America is still toward Black women, how we are met, right, with distaste and you're doing too much, right? I mean, I think, Patricia, you had had mentioned that and so so much, but the fact that we came from survivors. And so when I think about Sarah Bartman, who did not survive, right, I think about that. And I think about, though, how we're gonna to survive to to continue to, to tell her story, right? And our our children are gonna know whenever I have children, one day maybe, um, your children, are going to, you know, things like that. But I think about the, just the other black women that we mentioned before who experienced so much that we, and we don't know their names that maybe they also survived right and I think about Maya Angelou surviving all that she went through and just me right now even I'm gonna get personal for a second in my personal life when I'm surviving um so yeah Maya Angelou and definitely always for me is going to be Fannie Lou Hamer it's just going to always be her because never I met Fannie Lou Hamer and I don't mean I met her what I mean is studying history I i I meet people. I they posthumously impact me, and when I met Fannie Lou Hamer, it was I was in grad school. It's like 2012, and I was like, wow, she does not fit the image of all these other black women that I've seen in the books, right? And I'm, and once again, this is after college, right? And so in grad school, you're just super immersed in in, in everything, and I loved how loud she was, how loud she was. I love that she looked like my family members. I love that she was shaped like my aunts and everything like that. I love that she was not afraid. She was she was so fierce and, un, and just unapologetic. And yeah, I love her.
0: And for people that all these names that you ladies are gonna share, I just really encourage listeners to dive in. I mean, even the people that, you know, like we all know Maya Angelou, but there's so much to her story. And if you really want to challenge, actually read, I know why the cage bird sings because like you talked about Letty, people like to say that book, but have you really read that book? Yeah. And I have, but I'm going to reread it. This is a good, that was a good reminder and a good challenge. Thank you for that. Letty Marcy, who is your hero? I have three. I have, I have
2: probably 3000, but I, I, but for the purpose of this conversation, I'll stick to these three. One is Fannie Lou Hamer. So I'm so glad that you said that I just learned something about her new this week. And I thought, I, I thought there was nothing more I could learn. And one of the things that um, I learned was that she had this freedom garden that she, um, she had this freedom garden where it was a co-op. For feeding the community. I mean, long before our farmers markets and our what-to-dos, she did this. <laughs> and um, and she did it. And that's what I think black girl magic is. For me, when I say black girl magic, it's it's the nickel and the noodle and the little bit of patch of land that black women will take and they will. Educate the next generation. They will, you know, um, put it, somehow put a, it's that, it's that, you all know this. It's that pocket money that your grandma has, like in her purse. And you're like, grandma, where'd you get this from? Don't you worry about it. (laughs) I have this money, you know, or they're pulling it out of their bra. That was my grandmother's place. She would have the secret money in her bra for like, for them to be the the philanthropist the patrons of like oh baby you are gonna get that those art lessons you're gonna get this so i think about how much she did on so little i mean so little as far as her her resources and so she used her voice she used the presence of her body um and she went to places that we weren't used to seeing a person who looked like her sounded like her and she she showed up and so I love that about her um my second person is Serena Williams I love every time someone says something I love the way that she claps back but it's not like a clap back it's more like a stupid back like what you said was so stupid. And here's why, like the way that she responds to what people say about her body, what people say about her anger, what people say about her sexuality, how she's raising her daughter. You know, it's like, well, you don't like my body. I'm going to go over here and make my own fashion line. I'm going to, you know, (laughs) I love her. And there's this beautiful um, documentary that HBO did on her, like a behind the scenes where she, allowed their cameras to come into her world and film her and I mean it's so powerful um, because she's she's soft and she's she but then she's working out and it's just so it's so beautiful to see there are moments when she's the daughter there's moments when she's the mother so I just love Serena Williams and I love Michelle Obama, but let me tell you why I love her. I don't love her because of any political thing. To be quite honest, I don't really know much about, I, I need to do a-, a deep dive on what Obama's policies and all that was. But anyway, I love her because she showed up in the most known house of the world 110% black. He just showed up. And how we would show up. I love that she showed up like, "Well, I can't go without my mom." That's how that's how black women show up. If you got some babies and you need to be someplace, <laughs> and your mother is your primary caretaker of your children, you're going to bring her to the White House with you. I love that she showed up like that. I love that when she talks in her book about chasing other Black women in Washington because she needed friends, and how she built community for herself in this very hostile environment for her. Hostile. I don't think people recognize how, how hostile it was For her in particular, because Obama, as a man, it's different. And she talks about the difference of him being able to show up and how she would have to think about everything to show up and how she had to raise her daughters in that environment and how she cultivated appreciation of their blackness, of their womanhood, even under that white gaze, intense white gaze, laser beam. Of a white gay. So I I am now I live in her neighborhood, her old Chicago neighborhood. And let me tell you, we walk by her house, we walk by her house like I am going to Mecca. I'm like, <laughs> and um, you're not supposed to walk down that street, but you know, we just casually let the dog go on over there and we just walk by, you know, I just would love to just see her in real life because I just think that, yeah, we we had the first Black president. That's great. But for me, it's like, no, no, no. We had a Black first lady. And that
3: is so much more meaningful to me.
0: Tasha, would you like to share for you?
3: Yeah, I love this question. And also it was difficult for me to answer it. First, I want to just say, you know, Lady's going to read... The, the poem, right? She's going to be the poem and a phenomenal woman. And so, and I thought about that because I've, I've talked a lot about Dr. Maya uh, Angelou and her importance to my life. And I was a teenager when I read that poem. And it was the first time that, and this is honestly answering your question. It was the first time that I realized that, that as a black girl, my trauma did not have to define me. When I read, I know why Cage Bird sings and I read phenomenal, well, I read all of her poetry, but that poem in particular said, oh, I can be sexual, I can own my sexuality. I can, I can be that, I can be powerful. And so my, one of my heroes is Dr. Maya Angelou, for that reason, because she showed me, she gave me a clear cut path to your sexual abuse does not have to define you girl. Get it back, get it back right now, you know? And so as a teenager, that that was very important for me to have that, to look forward to one day. And then I can't talk about Dr. Maya Angelou without obviously talking about um, my godmother in my head, Oprah, who was also sexually abused and we have so many similarities, Oprah and I. And And how if anybody's paying attention, she looks better than she ever has in her whole life. Um, and and she owns her body in a different way today, and she just looks good, all right, with all of her curves. And, and and then when I think about Oprah, then I think about, um for some reason, present day Lizzo and just all of that, all of anybody that's followed Izzo on uh, Lizzo. <laughs> on Instagram. She is owning all of this. She's drinking her smoothie. She's twerking. She's going to give you that big butt with some, you know, some oils all on it. She's going to give it all to you. Uh, She's my shero And, and every black church lady that blends faith and fashion seamlessly. I don't participate in the fashion shows and all of that, but I can appreciate it. Every Jet Magazine model that ever was. Yeah, those are all of my sheroes and of course, soul trained dancers. That's what I got. That's my list.
0: Patricia, we'll probably end with you then if you want to share. All right, this was, this question
4: was so hard because like, like there's so many women. Okay, echoing Letty and Marcy, Fannie Lou Hamer was on my list as well. And and I want to share from, I think I love though that each of us have something different to say. I am deeply moved by how her faith motivated everything that she did and she like truly embodied what it meant to and means to pray with your feet. You know, like yes, I have my faith and that's deeply held beliefs and we're going to do something and we're going to act <laughs> and we're going to get out there and we're going to get after it. And there are lots of quotes of hers, you know, that I've read and shared and and just, you know, different um, things I read about her, but this one I I actually wanted to read because just looking at our conversation. But this one says there is one thing you have got to learn about our movement: three people are better than no people. And you know, just thinking of how easy it is to get dis- to get discouraged in the work that we're all doing in our in our own in different ways, and the value and the importance that we see and we know, but. All the pushback that continues to happen, you know, just all the things, you know, that could be discouraging. To be reminded that, hey, like we have a few people with us, then that's enough. Keep going, keep moving, and the way that her faith informed that really, really was meaningful to me, and is meaningful to me. Uh, The second person that I I thought of actually, this actually was the first person who came to mind was a famous contralto, Marian Anderson. And the reason being, because when I was a child, and it may have even been, I don't remember all the details, (laughs) it wouldn't have surprised me if it was like Black History Month program at school or something, (laughs) but like she's the first, like I remember, I'm not saying she's the first ever, but she's the first that I, I really clearly remember learning about, the first Black woman in history who I dressed up as, you know, went to class and like did my presentation about her and her life. You know, I love to sing, you know, I, and I was just like, there's these little similarities that I, I pulled from her, you know? <laughs> um, and and I just remember that, I think that was the first time I was really truly aware of of how accomplished, even, even with the rejection, even with, you know, a lot of her accomplishments happening outside of the United States because she was still, Disregarded here, that wow, like we can we can accomplish some things. Um, we're really talented. Like wow, like this is this is us. Um, and the story of her falling and breaking her leg the day before she was supposed to debut at the Carnegie Hall in 1935 in New York, and how she was still so determined to make that appearance that she uh, performed the whole program standing on one foot, balancing against the piano. Um, with her floor-length gown covering her cast on her ankle, and I just felt like that's some kind of resilience, you know, and that just always, always stuck with me. For a third person, like present-day person, I I've, I've, I have to say Miss Bernice King. She just does everything. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just does everything. Honestly, uh, she's she's pastoral. She's she's a brilliant woman. She's a truth teller. The way that she she carries on and honors her father's legacy, and is still so much her own woman. She gives a lot of herself, and I see just like all of these women just so like have given so much of themselves, you know. And some to to chase dreams and to, you know, to break records and and to excel at their at their gifts and their sports and and um and I just appreciate. I just have so much deep appreciation for for so many women, for all of these women who have paved the path for me and those who are like right now actively uh, fighting and speaking and and reminding all of us that we have work to do. We're not alone and we have worth. And and again, we have dignity. So uh, there's like for a week it like go round and round in this <laughs> and like share like, okay, three more, three more. But one thing that I, I wanted to do um, and we had discussed this beforehand, but I think we all agreed that to end on on a note of celebration, but with the knowledge that celebration doesn't just happen in thin air with no hardship you know uh, there's joy and grief there's there's harm and pain and in this conversation there's been so much trauma laid bare but yet we're still standing we're still here and we're we're still here in a phenomenal way so, I do want to read Phenomenal Woman by Maya Angelou and just only hope I can do it justice um, as a way to end this conversation. So let me clear my throat. (laughs) Okay, Phenomenal Woman. Pretty women wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model size, but when I start to tell them they think I'm telling lies, I say... It's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips, the stride of my step, the curl of my lips. I'm a woman phenomenally, phenomenal woman, that's me. I walk into a room just as cool as you please. And to a man, the fellows stand or fall down on their knees. Then they swarm around me, a hive of honeybees. I say, it's the fire in my eyes and the flash of my teeth, the swing in my waist, and the joy in my feet. I'm a woman phenomenally, phenomenal woman, that's me. Men themselves have wondered what they see in me. They try so much, but they can't touch my inner mystery. When I try to show them, they say they still can't see. I say, it's in the arch of my back, the sun of my smile, the ride of my breasts, the grace of my style. I'm a woman phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Now you understand just why my head's not bowed. I don't shout or jump about or have to talk real loud. When you see me passing, it ought to make you proud. I say, it's in the click of my heels, the bend of my hair, the palm of my hand, the need for my care. Because I'm a woman phenomenally, phenomenal woman, that's me.
0: Thank you for leaning in and listening to this episode. As always, the links mentioned, including the Miley Cyrus article and more information on Sarah Bartman and where to find my guests can be found at the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com.